Welcome to this IFPRI policy seminar that it was um, co-organized also with the University of Adelaide and funded um, by USAID. It is real pleasure to have you um, all here. Um, and we have an, an amazing um, program today. So we know that agricultural subsidies are high and increasing while highly concentrated in just a few countries and commodities. There is also a need for to think of finding the best way of reforming agricultural policies to better fit the world we live in today and finding a proper balance across all the dimensions from food security, nutrition, sustainable development objectives. In doing so, we will be faced with some uh, trade-offs. And here is when the existence of evidence is key at this time of deciding of how food and agricultural policy uh, support could be reformed in a way that will improve the agri-food system efficiency, will increase availability, and reduce also the cost of uh, nutritious foods. All these by providing strong incentives to reduce uh, greenhouse emissions and adapt to climate change, while of course natural resources are used uh, sustainably. In this seminar, we will discuss the impact of harmful environmental impacts and agricultural subsidies, acknowledging also these trade-offs that I just mentioned between the economic, the social, and environmental priorities, and of course, the repurposing of them. We will discuss options with a focus on international perspective and potential for international cooperation if and it will be required. So we will hear uh, first from um, two um, keynote speakers. So we first we will have uh, Kenash, and I will introduce them properly when it is their time. But he will uh, comment on some on the latest report from the Institute for International Trade on agricultural subsidies, and then we will hear from David Laborde that he will uh, also um, give us some comments about the latest. Uh, Done, uh, work done by IFPRI uh, on this uh, subject. And then it will be followed by four fantastic discussions that will give us their perspectives on the topics. We will have Leanne Jackson, Sophia Murphy, uh, Joseph Glover, and Nelson Ileskas. And again, I will introduce them properly when it is time for that. So um, before I give the floor to Rob Boss, who is the Director of Markets, Trade and Institutions here at uh, IFPRI, uh, to give the welcoming remarks. I would like to um, just uh, remind you that we want to hear from you. And if you want to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the discussion's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag uh, AskIfPre uh, on Twitter. And with this, Rob, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Valeria, for this introduction. I'm very happy to give a few opening remarks, but it will be very brief because we have a terrific lineup of speakers to introduce the issues to you. But just in brief, I think the, what we're talking about is the $800 billion question, the $800 billion that, uh, or around that, that governments spend every year in supporting agriculture and through its uh, food systems with support, uh, particularly uh, focused on farm level uh, support. Um, this support uh, uh, over the decades uh, very likely has been very instrumental to push up productivity and production levels, but there's also major concerns that this has gone at great cost of the environment um, and developing a food system that is um, delivering a lot 
but not enough. And it's not delivering on food security, it's not delivering on poverty reduction, and it's not delivering on environmental health of the, um, uh, the planet. So I think these are the issues at stake. Um, the um, work that will be presented here, the analysis undertaken, built some work that we've been undertaking over the past couple of years, um, including for the World Bank and FAO and other organizations, and also uh, what we've put on the, on the agenda of several international uh, platforms, the G20, uh, the G7, at COP, uh, the various COP meetings, uh, last year COP26 and also this year COP27, it's been put on the agenda uh, to make clear that um, uh, while we spend all these resources um, to support agriculture, um, it is not helping to improve the environment or fight uh, climate change. So how to do that? That's uh, question number one. We'll hear more about it, but also hope that we can discuss, okay, how to drive and uh, move the needle in terms of uh, how can we repurpose, uh, but also in ways that would be congenial to actually act on, on it. Since we've put this on the agenda, we have not seen uh, a lot of great movements in uh, reforming uh, agricultural uh, policies. So it's as important as understanding what needs to be done, also as important is uh, how should it be done in ways that it will indeed be effective. So I hope to hear more uh, in this uh, panel about this um, and uh, clear um, uh, some space, uh, also the political fronts to make this uh, acceptable uh, as necessary as the agenda is. So with that, let me give it back to Valeria and I look forward to a very fruitful and stimulating discussion. Thank you very much, Rob, for your uh, introductory uh, remarks. So uh, let's start with uh, Ken Ash. He is visiting fellow of the Institute for International Trade, IIT, and the University of Adelaide. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. It's so nice to have you here. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, thank you, Rob, Valeria. Look, I'm going to make a few comments over the next 10 minutes, um, drawing primarily on a recent review of published literature on agricultural support uh, and its impacts uh, on the environment and on climate. This is work that was undertaken by a colleague, Anthony Cox, as well as uh, colleagues of both of ours at the Institute for International Trade uh, at the University of Adelaide. And Peter Draper will maybe say a few words at the end of this as well. Uh, the motivation and the funding for this particular review was provided by Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, so that's by way of background. Uh, the first substantive point I want to make is, look, we, we know an awful lot already about agricultural support from uh, both WTO and OECD data uh, and analysis. The WTO data are based on notifications by its members and organized according to domestic support commitments that they made in 1995. Those commitments distinguish, on the one hand, between support that clearly distorts production and trade. So that's subsidies, subsidies that are based on input use and output quantities, as well though uh, regulatory measures that support domestic prices at levels higher than international prices. 
Now, distortionary support can be available under the Uruguay Round Agreement, but within limits. On the other hand, minimally or non-trade distorting support can be available without limits. So support for public goods, for general services, for activities, contributions to the sector uh, that are not directly linked to current farm production decisions. Um, the latest year that comprehensive WTO data are available is uh, 2016, when the most trade distorting support totaled just over 80 billion US dollars. During the same year, support linked to development goals and direct payments with production limits totaled over 40 billion US dollars, while minimally or non-trade distorting support was over 400 billion US dollars. Over 80% of this support was provided by just 10 of the WTO's 164 members. And there is little constraint today to uh, distorting support increasing further. The permissible limit today is about 1 trillion US dollars, so more than 10 times the actual level of support. And that limit is expected to increase to double uh, to about 2 trillion uh, over the next uh, eight years. The OECD data, on the other hand, cover fewer countries, but still 75% of global agricultural value added. And they're not organized according to legal commitments. They're organized according to an economic framework that allows for analysis of the incidence and the impact of policies that are actually in place. OECD estimates are available up to 2021. In recent years, support has been increasing, and over the past three years, averaged more than 611 billion US dollars annually. 60%, uh, roughly 60% of this support is delivered via the most distorting forms of policy instruments. So we know a lot, uh, and I've just given you the tip of the iceberg, we know a lot about agricultural support. And there's a growing body of research as well that's looking at not just how that support uh, might impact production decisions and subsequent trade flows, but it's looking at environmental impacts. Now, in a nutshell, uh, production-linked support changes the economic incentives of farmers and often leads to unintended negative environmental outcomes today. There's widespread agreement in the literature on the causal pathways referred to as the intensive margin, the extensive margin, and the entry-exit margin. And I wanna just very briefly illustrate each of those. So in a very practical sense, uh, input and output subsidies encourage, no surprise, increased use of inputs and more intensive stocking rates and cropping practices, often leading, for example, to overuse of pesticides and fertilizers, increased runoff, and to higher greenhouse gas emissions. Production and price support encourages extensification of production systems and changes in land use, bringing fragile land or pasture into crop production, for example, and endangering biodiversity and carbon sinks. Output-based support encourages bringing new land into production, increasing deforestation and soil erosion, and decreasing carbon sinks and natural habitats. Now, all of this is pretty negative. Agriculture support can also have positive impacts on the environment, for example, by targeting habitat provision, carbon storage, and so on. But the facts are over the past three years, 
on average, less than 10 billion US dollars targeted provision of these kinds of environmental public goods in contrast to the hundreds of billions of US dollars uh, committed to production link support. Now, our review also highlights two major reports which were, releasing, were, which were released just recently. The first by the FAO, uh, UNDP and UNEP and the second by the World Bank Group uh, just earlier this year. Both looked at the effects on emissions of repurposing agricultural support as Valeria has referred to. Uh, and she referred to them, I expect, because the, the underlying analysis uh, for the, both of those reports was undertaken by IFPRI. And I'm pretty sure David will say a few words about uh, those in a couple of minutes. Now, our review takes uh, a global perspective, uh, but I want to note as well that there's a great deal of research available on the much more local impacts of agricultural support on land, water, and biodiversity. So what does all this mean? Uh, yes, we know that agricultural support is high. We've known that for at least 27 years and maybe closer to 45. Uh, we know that agricultural support is highly concentrated. Much of it distorts production and trade and is environmentally harmful. And we also know that multilateral trade rules are becoming less binding over time. So we are suggesting in our report, two avenues need to be pursued. The first is making the available information and analysis more accessible, more penetrable to policymakers, while at the same time filling some important knowledge gaps. And we can talk more about those gaps a little later if you wish, but even the best information is not enough. Uh, our second suggestion is about creating a coalition of stakeholders, a diversity of interests, and to try to increase the coherence of our messages. Uh, there's a lot of information available, but there's also a lot of noise out there. And who should policymakers listen to? What is the truth? Or what is the complete set of up-to-date facts upon which they can begin to, to make uh, difficult and important choices? So we suggest we need a network a, in, in order to build a, a much improved but evidence-based narrative. Uh, and to bring it to places like the WTO, but also to APEC, G20, G7, and other international platforms. And I think we also talk about the need to be open to, to new ways forward. Um, I mean, what we've done for the last 27 years since the Uruguay Round Agreement was signed uh, is not working, clearly. Um, there's interesting conversations in the WTO in the context of the trade and environment uh, environmental sustainability structure discussions. That's uh, a ray of hope. Uh, maybe we need to think harder about a plurilateral uh, on agriculture. Uh, and maybe it's time to talk about serious subsidy reform, not just agriculture, but across a range of sectors, fisheries, fossil fuels, industrial, semiconductors. Uh, subsidies are a reasonably healthy, uh, growth industry at the moment uh, and bringing a little discipline to some of that conversation, uh, as ambitious as that might sound, might uh, provide a, a, an interesting or a positive uh, platform. Two final points, Valeria. Um, we don't talk enough, uh, and we note this in the paper, as, as experts, we don't talk enough about the enormous opportunity costs of existing subsidies. You know, money spent on production-based income transfers 
Is money not available for agricultural R&D, climate mitigation, digital applications in agriculture? And it's not even uh, money that's available for hospital beds, schools, uh, and other uh, essential services. Last point, I wanna be super clear on this. Not all subsidies are bad, but neither are they all good. Okay, this is not about eliminating agricultural support. This is about ensuring that support works as intended, that the policy instruments chosen are well in line with the explicit objectives stated by government, and that the inevitable trade-offs and the unintended impacts of policies that are put in place are anticipated and brought into the decision-making process. So with that, thank you, and I look forward to the conversation. Ken, thank you. Thank you so much um, for, for your comments. I really like the idea of uh, creating a coalition uh, for cooperation, and I will add also some uh, transparency into that. And of course, with your last comment about not all subsidies are bad, but not all of them are good. So that's a, that's a good way of, of, of ending this. Um, so now um, let me give the floor to David Laborde. He's Senior Research Fellow here at IFPRI. David? Yes, thanks, uh, Valeria. Um, and thanks also to, to Ken to have done a great um, beginning of the discussion. And I will uh, actually follow up on a number of his uh, points. So I'm going, what I'm going to do is basically give you a summary of some of the things we have done at IFPRI and things that uh, we have learned, or at least I have learned um, during my Overview, I'm going to talk about various pieces of work that we have done. So within, uh, in particular, the Market and Trade Institution Division at IFPRI. So uh, the work I am going to refer to involve work done uh, with and by uh, Valeria, a uh, Glober that we'll talk after, Robbo that has already talked, but also Will Martin uh, and um, Abdullah Mamoun. Uh, and so it's already a collective effort here. I just give a, a kind of summary of the situation. So what we have done on this topic, I mean, we have worked on farm policies um, at least for, for 15 years and actually free has worked more time uh, on that. Uh, but we really start to frame it in terms of repurposing in 2018 uh, and in 2020 and in 2021, you see these three a bunch of work the one in the middle has been referred by, by Ken in, in the UN, uh, UNDP FAO report, the billion dollar opportunity. Um, and we had the first piece with the World Bank in 2020, and we look at some scenario for the UN Food System Summit. And the initial starting point was really looking at environmental impact through the lens of agricultural emission of the current policies, and then step-by-step -step understanding among the agricultural support space uh, which instrument may have a, a stronger effect on, on climate, on nature, on some nutrition uh, indicators, but so equity in terms of poverty. And starting in 21, we were starting to, to see if when we, if we change the purpose of policy and we start to reallocate the money, can we get uh, something that is more uh, climate friendly or, or, or nutrition friendly? In uh, 2022, three pieces of work, uh, the, the, another piece with the World Bank, where actually we, we look at some of the green innovation and, and productivity um, uh, innovation that can be done when they target also emission reduction. Uh, we contributed to the SOFI 2022 report where the question of diets was uh, much more, uh, well, the 
key focus, but also the different uh, trade-off. I will refer to it after. And uh, last but not least, when we start to think, you know, if some of the policy targets are mainly a consumer level target or a producer level target, and when we think about food system where the uh, subsidies should go when we need subsidies. But also in, in um, ongoing work with the Food System Economic Commission, um, we think about different value valuation of the existing policies, but also can we make it work for the global south? Because I think that's going to be an important topic. You know, some of these discussions are really taking place in the north when some of the uh, outcome uh, and needed outcome of transforming the system should occur in, in the global south. So what we what can what we have learned? Um, seven points. I'm going to uh, detail some of them. But first, I think that we have to acknowledge that farm policies are complex and diverse. Uh, Sometimes um, they can be implemented at a very detailed level, and uh, people can be prone to oversimplification. You know, it's not like if we have uh, a big pot of money with all the support and we can start to redistribute it uh, uh, freely. Some of the support are not subsidies, and I think that's very important to, to keep it in mind. We don't have uh, 1 billion or $800 million of public money spent on, on, on farmers. We have actually half of it between 350 and 400 billions because a lot of the support go through price manipulation. But price manipulation is not fiscal space, and actually price support is going to increase price. So we'll have a negative impact on demand when subsidies overall are going to push price down and we'll have a positive effect on demand. So really keeping this different uh, landscape of, of uh, policy is important. Uh, they are also just a part of the decision made by farmers and depending the size of the subsidies, some countries farmers really look at them. In other countries, uh, they are much less impacted by subsidies because there is uh, very few, meaning that it doesn't mean there is no environmental problem. So really, I think we also have to understand that the environmental problems we associate with agricultural production are not synonymous with the environmental problems that are associated with subsidies. And in some cases, as it has been said, some of these subsidies can help solving the environmental problems. But in other cases, when they just scale up production, they just make things worse. And that's where we, we, we need to, to keep these uh, things. Third point about policy space, uh, sometimes, you know, between the ex-ante policy goals and policy design and the ex-post impact, we can have things that are of a different nature. Um, and, and so, you know, what is an harmful subsidies? Some good subsidies on the paper can have harmful impact. And sometimes some not so good subsidies on the paper had led to uh, interesting uh, response by farmers in terms of innovation or uh, investment. So even you know finding this proper language is going to be challenging. And I think that also the example read by Ken is very interesting because if you look at some of the discussion on subsidy at the WTO, they are first of all a legal discussion. When if you move to the OECD type of analysis, they are much more an economic and uh, actual impact discussion. So how we breed these different community is important. The next uh, group of things is when we want to change policies, in many cases, these policies, it takes place at the country level or a group of countries like the European Union, but some of these environmental impacts are cross-border. 
And that's going to make the story a bit more difficult, even if much more, especially when we think about climate goals. Now, removing all subsidies today in some of the more recent work we, we do uh, is going actually to be a bad idea. So the goal is not to just make this money disappear, but use it differently. And the question of sustainable productivity is key, you know, because people are going to continue to eat. Uh, so the total vo volume of production on Earth not going to collapse if we change subsidies, but there's a lot of redistribution taking place. Now, we started to say, okay, we are interested in environment, we're interested in uh, diets, we're interested in social impact. But then when we look at the policy reform process, sometimes, you know, keep things simple help, you know, one policy, one target, we deliver on that. When at the opposite, if we want to solve all the problems just with one big reform, uh, that can be too, too big to, to, to swallow. Last but not least, as I've said, how we deal with the global south. So in the three minutes I still have, I will focus on uh, uh, first these three uh, first point. And just to say, yes, you know, we have to keep in mind that we have subsidies and trade policy measure. They all also have their own political economy. They all have their own um, uh, fiscal space implication. And these different instruments are going to change how much we produce or so the scale of what we do and Let's be honest today, the more we produce, the more we damage the environment. You know, uh, that's the basic uh, story that we see. It can change what we produce in terms of product and where we produce them. So that's where actually um, it shifts the, the overall production in terms of uh, uh, space and uh, geographical and product space. But also, and that's maybe the more challenging, is how we can use this subsidy to change how we produce things in a more sustainable way. Knowing that you have also producers in the world today that are doing it in a sustainable way without receiving payments. So it's not like if you need to be paid to be sustainable. I think it's really depends also of initial institution, how initial property rights have been um, uh, defined on, on land, on water, and things like this. And so in the process of policy reform, that's going to be important because do we want to pay people more to do something more? Or just do we say, okay, no, you receive money from the government, you're expected to do A, B, and C. It's not like if you have already uh, enshrined um, rights on, on some of the payment by the government. Now, also, uh, sometimes when we talk about harmful subsidies, I was saying, you know, there's a lot of subtlety. So uh, Ken before I already referred that input subsidies and output subsidies are linked to production. So really the scale effect matters. But even if you look at the input subsidies uh, of the OECD, you will see that they are not look all bad. Okay, from the beginning, there are some categories of input subsidies that are linked to environment. There is some that can be linked to risk management. Some are linked to extension services when they are provided by your private companies. And I think that most experts will accept this idea that they are pretty good policies. When things that give you tax rebate to use fossil fuel, not really a good policy, you know. So we, we have to keep in mind this um, this detail. And even in a category like irrigation, we can have payment for irrigation that lead to an overuse of water, or you can have payment for irrigation that is to adopt a drop drip irrigation. So that's sometimes the level of detail we have to go uh, in. On uh, the cross-border effect and the fact that removing all existing policy can can actually have a negative impact. 
something we that is linked to what we do with the Food Security Economic Commission, and where it can lead to the surprising result, at least for some, that if we remove policy today, we are going to have global costs. And it's mainly coming from a reduction in production of countries like uh, China or in Europe, sh shifting production in Latin America or in Africa, where this production can actually lead to loss of biodiversity, carbon, that have a much higher value than the current damage that is done in Europe. Basically, the marginal damage on biodiversity in Europe has a low price. If we know we start to move to uh, land where there is a high carbon and biodiversity stock in the tropical area to replace the production, then the global balance is negative. But of course, and that's what you see on the right hand side of this slide, there's also a number of uncertainty. And I want us to make clear, you know, when you do this modeling, there is a level of uncertainty, uh, evaluation of carbon, evaluation of biodiversity, but also how we should value some of these losses. Now, moving to my conclusion and the last uh, uh, aspect of it. Yes, here I present a very oversimplified story of of farm policy goal, but I think it's kind of interesting to keep this in mind. You know, during maybe uh, after World War II, both in advanced economy uh, and in middle income, income, middle income economy today, so at the time they were even poor, farm policy were about producing more, more intensification, and uh, in some cases also targeting self-sufficiency goals. Some of these policy were also basically hurting producers to uh, help consumers by maintaining, you know, some food prices low, but you were compensating with subsidies. But the goal was to really produce more. Over time, especially in the US and in Europe, the goal of supporting farmer income has become much more important. And so some policy instruments were used to do that. Then starting in the 90s, we have actually see the environmental question coming up. And so some of this money were paid to be more environmentally friendly or at least just even to protect land. And now we start to see health and nutrition uh, topics uh, coming. But you see, we are increasing the space and the number of problems that sometimes we try to solve with farm policies, and we may have to be careful about that. And I'm just going to conclude by taking some of the work we have done with, with Joe Glober uh, for the, the Sophie report, where on this graph, what you see is for the world and different group of countries, the outcome of some of these repurposing scenarios in a space where vertically you have the amount of emission and horizontally you have the affordability of healthy diet. So if you have a point like this one here, it means that at the same time you make healthy diet more affordable, but you also produce more emission. So that's typically the type of outcome we don't want. But in the policy we have looked at, you can see that there's a number of cases here for high income countries where we can improve affordability of healthy diet and reduce emission, the type of outcome we want. But for low income countries, a lot of these policies that are mainly driven by the change in the north will translate by adverse effect for them, either just in terms of emission or um, in some case, even in emission and affordability of healthy diet. So really, this is this trade-off that are important among objective, but among countries, in a situation where most of the money is basically in the north, plus India and China, where a number of environmental and social challenges are in other countries in low and middle income case. Thank you.
Thank you very much, uh, David, for your comments. I really liked the, the way you highlighted that the policies are done at domestic level, but if you're looking at environmental impacts, we see it at the global. So the importance of bringing also the global south into the discussion and being participants in all this. Um, and now I would like to move to the second part of this, uh, this seminar. And before that, I would like just to remind you that you can ask questions on if or Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFPRI in, uh, on Twitter. So now uh, let me please introduce uh, Leanne Jackson. She's the head of division from the Agri-Food Trade and Markets from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Leanne, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us and the floor is all yours. Thanks so much, Valeria. It's really, really a pleasure to be here um, and to discuss these two, uh, two great pieces of work. Um, Ken's comments about all the data that have been put together over time at the WTO and the OECD, um, and also the, what we have seen about the, the trends in support to agriculture over time and how it really should be motivating us to change. And David's comments talking about making sure we have a global picture and really digging into these trade-offs um, and put it, pulling together evidence across lots of different objectives was also really resonating um, with me as I was listening to these presentations. So when I was thinking about my remarks, um, I a lot of the work that my team is doing at the OECD is focusing on this food systems approach, which I think we heard through the themes that were coming in from the from Ken and David. Um, and of course, here the issue is that we're talking about multiple objectives, and we we heard that through both of the previous speakers. And it's kind of shifting the paradigm of how we're thinking about agriculture. We're trying to think about how can we create food systems that can provide food security and livelihoods and do it in an environmentally sustainable way. So we're really pushing the envelope to think about what it takes to think in a systems way. Um, we heard, and if we if you looked at the paper um, that Ken put together with the University of Adelaide, you can see lots of good evidence has been put together over time. <laughs> lots of research has been going into making the case for why we need to have this paradigm shift and to really be thinking about new ways of thinking about support to agriculture to achieve these multiple objectives. But we haven't seen much change. So how do we actually go about shifting the paradigm? Um, one of the pieces of research my team does every year is in collaboration with the FAO, we do these 10-year commodity projections. Um, and last year we looked at what it would take to actually, what kind of productivity improvements would it take to achieve um, SDG 2, um, solving global hunger, at the same time addressing some of the Paris climate objectives. And the number that we came up with through our modeling was there would have to be three times the productivity increases that we've seen on average over the past 10 years. So it's really just to point, <laughs> stress the point that it's really a dramatic change we're looking at if we want the world to move in the direction um, that we say we want to be moving in. So why is it so hard to transform? Um, we have evidence and, and analysis talking about how existing policies, particularly agricultural support, create stickiness in terms of systems adapting, um, economic incentives that keep farmers producing in a particular way, um, creating market distortions that keep production from shifting, even if the other incentives are shifting around it. Um, 
so clearly we have evidence that's telling us that something needs to happen. And um, the question is, what does it take to get the change to happen? Um, one of the issues I think is transparency. Um, and I think when we say transparency, we use it as a catchword, but actually there's a whole um, range of different kinds of transparency. I think that some of the suggestions that were put forward um, in the paper that Ken was talking about talks about different ways of synthesizing information, mobilizing data so that policymakers and decision makers can actually see um, see the whole picture, maybe not so granular, take broader decisions by and be, being able to compare across time. But transparency also takes consistent investment. So one of the good things about both the OECD and WTO um, over the past couple of decades is that there is this um, uh, year, year after year collection of data, um, but how it's been put together to make the arguments for change um, maybe we can think more creatively about how to merge those two kinds of two kinds of data. But I think there's a more there's a deeper reason why it's hard to change, and that's um, because it's not just evidence that makes people change. We know that that in um, in food systems and thinking about food systems change, we have um, differences in the way people think about facts and evidence, but we also have differences across interest groups, and we have differences in values. And when we're talking about food and agriculture and environment and inclusive livelihoods, we have wildly, we have a huge range of values that we have to, we have to be thinking about as we're trying to put together um, momentum towards change. And we have seen in food systems um, in more recent years, some efforts that that countries are taking to try to have deliberative processes where they where they bring citizens together. For example, um, the Irish Citizens Assembly is a good example where they sort of grapple with complicated issues, and they have a representative group of citizens that that come together to talk about it and to be faced with evidence um, and given the chance to dig into the evidence. Um, I think a little bit more effort thinking about navigating some of those stickiness, the stickiness across interests and values would also help in terms of figuring out how to make this paradigm shift. And then the third um, thing that's, that reading the paper um, made me think about was, how do we think about breaking down silos? What are the communities that we're actually talking about? If we're trying to put together groups or coalitions who are who have the appetite to try to find a, a common approach to, to reforming in agriculture. Um, clearly, we have to think about the different silos in, in countries across different ministries. <laughs> we have to be thinking also, if we're thinking about WTO, um, rules and disciplines, um, the different agreements that might be touching on agriculture. So we, of course, the agreement on agriculture, where lots of these rules are sitting, but um, the uh, work in environment, work on SPS, work on TBT, there's lots of different areas within existing rules where there are nuggets of, of wisdom <laughs> that if we could find a way of, of, of um, having the conversation across um, those communities and those sets of rules, I think we might be able to find uh, a stronger, stronger momentum towards towards finding finding appetite for change. So I thought I thought um, the paper and also David's presentation really set us up for a very good discussion. Um, and uh, the work.
world is changing fast. <laughs> Technology is changing fast. The climate is changing fast. We need to find a way to also um, get the agricultural system, the agri-food system to change um, in pace with what, what's going on in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you very much. Um, I actually really like uh, the, the word stickiness. I haven't uh, heard it in this context, and I, I do think that it really applies uh, very well. Thank you. So with this, uh, let me pass the floor to Sophia Murphy. She is the Executive Director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, the IATP. Uh, Sophia, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valeria. Thank you for this chance. And um, I'm very happy to come. It's such an issue and a subject area I've looked at for, for far more years than I would really like to count. Um, and congratulations, really an amazing report, well-written, very clear, a nice review of a lot of information. And I especially appreciate that it included both national and global studies, because I think that that brings out, uh, especially for the politics, but maybe also for the ways forward. I think we may find them coming up from the ground up, if you like. Um, so that was great. And also, of course, this conversation now is impossible without thinking about trade-offs. And I'm very happy that that's the case. So, so a few quibbles, um, some smaller, and then into some bigger questions that I still feel uh, need to be aired, even if you've heard me say some of them before. And some have already been touched on. Really appreciate, David, your seven points um, that you put into that ARC um, slide. But um, one, this question always, is trade distorting the most important quality? And, and I think we're getting at a lot of other things in the report, and that's important, but just just to remember from a lot of countries' point of view, the trade distortingness of their policy doesn't really matter to them. And so how do we deal with that? It does matter to others. We do have the spillovers. I don't want to say it's not important, but um, you know, the market price support has a very different you know, logic and support in different places. And so how do we think about that? And I guess linked to that, that the OECD is not the world, which I think is also the point that David is making. And I think is really hard to keep in mind with the global studies, especially when we're trying to simplify the message so a policymaker will pay attention. So that challenge to us of, of how do we deal with the other hundred or so countries that are not even in the larger sense of OECD, you know, captured in the, in the data. And I would agree the WTO data is useful, but it's really different. <laughs> it is more comprehensive, but but also patchy. Joe and I and others looked at that a few years ago. And who, who actually notifies is another transparency question. Um, we don't have the best data. Um, and then to come to some larger questions, one is this issue of, of market concentration power in the supply chain and what else farmers respond to and how do we how do we allow for that in the modeling we want to do and in the assumptions we have about why programs work in a certain way or don't? Um, the point that farmers will grow food with or without subsidies is clearly true, but also that they're growing food in response to a lot of different pressures, among which are the public subsidies that exist. Um, and you see, I think this conversation, like the, 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 the number, the plethora of net zero plans and the heroic assumptions about what land is gonna do in those net zero plans and what role farmers are gonna play in food company supply chains, um, raise a lot of questions about what is going to be incentivizing what kind of farmer behavior um, and, and where the public money will align in that, I think is gonna be really important. It, it's, it seemed to me sitting in the, 
climate change negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh that there's a tidal wave of private money coming from outside agriculture looking to buy uh, I, I think of them as indulgences, you know, like medieval Catholic church. They want to buy off the pressure on them to reduce their emissions by stacking some carbon in the soil someplace or maybe planting a forest or doing something else. And, and that private money, which is not responding to agricultural economics, is, I think, a really important uh, piece of understanding um, Yeah, how agriculture might change shape, how we might deal with things. And my impression was that agricultural ministries in both rich and poorer countries are quite excited about the potential to realize money coming from these, these offsets and, and removals proposals. Um, and I think there's some real risks in there. One example, just to quickly give something more concrete, the, the emergence of this interest in biogas production in the United States, which depends on methane from massive lagoons created by confined animal feeding operations. And so you, you know, you're doing something useful with a nasty product, but you're also building in a new incentive for production of methane, which we actually want to reduce. And at the same time, and from the political point of view, you're undermining decades of work from the communities that live by those confined animal operations who deal with significant health issues, water quality issues, air quality pollution, and they're fighting to end that. And so you want to make sure that you're you know, environmental subsidy to to do something positive for the climate is not at the same time disrupting what the local community needs from its farm system. So that's that's about really the the complication, the complicated politics. I'm just thinking through what to what to say and how not to rush it. I think there's some important comparison maybe with the 80s and now about who uses the, the subsidies. They were even more concentrated maybe when we were negotiating the Uruguay round, US and EU, but both those powers wanted to reduce their subsidies. And then the Cairns group was a fairly um, interesting coalition of quite different countries with a more radical agenda, kind of creating a pull where the other two countries could sort of find themselves dealing with programs that had been overtaken by history, really. They were, they were designed to do something that was no longer the, the it wasn't, they weren't addressing the current reality. So I don't know if it would be, I'm interested in why, you know, China and India are introducing these subsidies now, and we would wish that they weren't for many reasons, but they are responding to current pressure doing that. And, and I think it would, and they're not going to give them up for climate arguments. There was also clear in the climate negotiations, a lot of developing countries feel it's almost unethical to talk about mitigating greenhouse gases from the agricultural sector because they've got food security concerns. And I think that unpacking that would be really important. I don't believe that that's true, but I think we do need to maybe come at it. And so come at it from a different place. And I think if we were looking at the subsidies that are looking at water um, use and quality and soil health and so on, we maybe are speaking to developing countries where they are. And that may be one of the ways in which we can be talking about some of the better subsidies versus others. And you're not doing it for something else for a problem which they consider was created by other countries but you're, you're doing it because um, you're protecting your food security and your adaptive capacity where, where, you, where you live. Um, so that's, I guess, maybe just a last thing about sort of some areas where IATP, my institute is looking into the future with these questions. One is wanting to do some assessment. There is currently very little um, kind of climate 
conditionality on public finance for agriculture. Farm credit doesn't ask you to do a climate risk assessment, for example. Are there some ways in which those, those things, which I don't know if they count as subsidies or not, but it seems to me more rules on how the public money is used could be positive for where, for where investment happens. And then I'm interested in these projections of what climate change implies for the big agricultural exporters. How long into the future can they presume to produce these vast quantities of crops, which are often produced in quite polluting ways? And, and does climate change projections support the assumption that that food production can continue where it is? Um, and then what does it imply for the distribution channels? So you see the Mississippi drying up, you see barges stuck, you see that problem in Europe, I'm sure you're seeing it elsewhere as well. Um, and, and so if we are going to think about where agriculture happens most efficiently, even from an environmental point of view, we also have to think about how it will get distributed and what our risk mechanism is to, to protect us from the fact that, well, and in, in the Ukraine war was, was an example, we don't always control the distribution system. I'll finish. Thanks you so much. Sophia, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you give also the point of view of uh, the agricultural sector uh, not being alone in this world, but connected to the rest of the sectors. So how that uh, also will play uh, a key role in the future. So thank you very much. And with this, um, we have uh, Joseph uh, Glover, um, or Joe, uh, he's Senior Research Fellow here at IFPRI as well. Um, Joe, the floor is all yours. Great, thanks Valeria. Um, Valeria asked me to address sort of some of the recent US efforts uh, to address climate change in their agricultural policies. And I think, I mean, one, uh, these efforts aren't new. Uh, Congress back in 2009 debated uh, legislation that would have uh, established uh, caps for greenhouse gases in the energy sector. And agriculture would have had to absorb relatively modest increases from those caps, but they would have been able to uh, sell carbon offsets uh, to the regulated uh, parties in a proposed cap and trade system. Ultimately, the legislation failed for a number of reasons, but as far as what what agriculture, uh, their view of it was they were they were very much worried about the tax and skeptical about the promise of the benefits of, of offsets. Moving forward 13 years, uh, we're now back, climate's back on the agenda. And I think uh, over the last uh, uh, several months, USDA has announced some, some fairly large initiatives. Um, one is uh, uh, some $3 billion in ad hoc funding that would uh, promote large-scale pilot projects, some of which uh, Sophia mentioned, that uh, would emphasize greenhouse gas benefits. Uh, they just released another 300-some-odd million this past week to smaller enterprises to sort of encourage uh, climate-friendly practices. And then you have this big uh, piece of legislation that went through Congress this year, the Inflation Reduction Act, which pr would provide another additional um, $18 billion for conservation programs over 10 years to address uh, greenhouse gas reductions. Um, there's also some provisions in that to extend tax credits for biodiesel production. I, I, I would say that these are fairly modest relative to the $20 billion spent annually in the federal or the US safety net, you know, through the price and income support programs, the existing conservation programs, and then the crop insurance program. I also think this would, to call this re, uh, repurposing would be a mistake, just in the sense of these aren't 
replacing the existing subsidies, but they're in addition. And I think while most farm groups are aboard with the idea of uh, spending more money to encourage practices that reduce greenhouse gas emissions or sequester carbon, but they're much less interested in replacing the existing suite of programs. Uh, we have a farm bill that will be debated beginning, uh, it's already started the debate, um, but Congress will be busy next year looking at, at, at um, uh, new farm legislation. And I think there the debate's gonna be not so much whether or not Congress wants to do something on climate. I think actually there will be a lot of proposals to do that, uh, to get some of this ad hoc pra uh, practices that are now, or, or policies that are now in, uh, uh, operating would like to see that put into the farm legislation. But the problem is where to find the money. And the question that I said before of, of taking it out of the pockets of some of these other programs, I just don't think that's um, likely to happen. And in fact, the irony is, is there has been some repurposing uh, debates over the last several farm bills, and that's been mainly taking the money out of the nutrition programs and putting that into the farm programs. And I don't think that's the direction uh, proponents of repurposing are thinking. Um, I, I would just uh, uh, echo a couple of things uh, that that Sophia mentioned, and that's that it, and they essentially revolve around program design. I think that's really critical here. I think one thing that that these climate a lot of these climate programs, you know, get criticized for is the these these uh, factors like additionality. How much bang are you really getting for the additional dollars you're spending? Um, whether or not these practices are verifiable, which I think in some case, actually, because there is an international accounting for greenhouse gases, that becomes important. And then permanence, whether or not if you're doing it one year, that's great. But if indeed you turn up uh, um, uh, replowing land or whatever, releasing carbon the next year, that's that's less so. And then lastly, and this is to echo a point that many many of the speakers, uh, previous speakers have made, is these programs have to be designed in a way that are compliant with WTO uh, rules. And I think that's very uh, critical here. I mean, some argue that we need to rethink WTO rules. I would argue that there's plenty within the existing uh, uh, regulations or the provisions of the agreement on agriculture, would, which would allow for climate smart practices, but they have to be done in a way that don't cause these massive externalities, like putting a lot more subsidized grain on the market or something like that. And with that, I will uh, close. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Joe. Um, that last connection with uh, also what Sophia was mentioning. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think that uh, we will discuss uh, going to more depth uh, for the Q&A. We're getting some questions that also relates to that. So thank you for bringing that up. And um, last but not least, we have uh, Nelson Ilesca. He's the director of the INAI Foundation in Argentina. So Nelson, thank you so much for joining us uh, today again. And um, the floor is all yours. Well, thanks, thanks Valeria and Ifrit for, for the invitation to be, to be part of this discussion. Uh, well, let me say that uh, the views and, and the opinions expressed during this presentation are, are mine and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and views of INAI Foundation or, or its member. Sorry, but I'm a lawyer. I have to do this. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to, to thank the organization of this seminar because it is, this discussion is very welcome right now. It's, it's very useful to bring subsidies back to the to the discussion table 
also, I think it's very relevant to have the a discussion on policies based on data. Ken was mentioned at the beginning that data on WTO is outdated. I think that countries must reinforce this transparency obligation uh, with respect to the existing domestic support commitments. It's, it's imperative to have a real understanding of the amounts of subsidy subsidies in agriculture. Uh, many of the subsidies are, are not notified in real time, so we have a lot of, of work to do uh, on, on that field. Agriculture support goes largely to agricultural producers. You know that, primarily in form that affect market prices and distort incentives for both producers also and uh, consumers and all along the, the, the value chain. So we have to find a way to avoid this in a more, uh, uh, to avoid this is, is more than, than needed. Uh, in, in INAE, we have been working on these uh, topics for a long, long time. Uh, we have been saying that in, in bilateral or regional negotiations for a trade agreement, uh, we can include a lot of issues, but something remains absent of this kind of negotiation, and that's subsidies. Because for many years, negotiators have been trying to, to find some language about the topic, and the answer was always the same. Subsidies are part of the multilateral agenda. And okay, one of the most, uh, one of the, I think, greatest achievement of WTO was to set limits on the amount uh, of the subsidies for the agriculture sector. Uh, and this was complemented by the promotion of the reduction of those subsidies through trade negotiation after uh, before, uh, after, sorry, Uruguay round, the idea was keep reducing and keep negotiating. And that was Doha round, but that was more than 20 years ago. Uh, negotiations, negotiations stagnated and commitments on subsidy have remained at the level established during the, the, the Uruguay round. We are conscious that a total elimination of, of subsidies is an utopia. But we need new disciplines. New disciplines are essential for subsidies because the, the norms or the, or, or, or the rules that were established during the, during the Uruguay round do not address a reality that differs greatly from what prevailed when they were established. So important changes have been made in agriculture policies. It was mentioned not only the farm bill, but also the, the the common agricultural policy in, uh, in, in Europe and also in developing countries. Nowadays, developing countries are the ones that are subsidizing the most in, in according to, to OECD. So uh, I think that we have to work on, on, on domestic support. I think that we all agree that current support policies need to be targeted, better targeted in order to reduce the cost of nutritious food, increase sustainability, make trade freer, and increase farmers' income, among other important issues and, and objectives. But it's, it's hard to find a balance between all these different goals. Because as it was mentioned, some subsidies have significantly contributed to growing production and reducing, and reducing the price of agricultural products. Uh, with positive impacts on food security and farm incomes. But it has, it has some trade-offs, some negative uh, side, because 
they, they encourage monocultures, cease the farming of certain nutritious food, prevented the development of agriculture in other regions, turning them into importers, and contributed, as it was mentioned, in the emissions of greenhouse gases. With some of, of the authors that are here, we work uh, into some of the issues in the T20 of Indonesia during this year. Uh, and we found out that some several issues, uh, some, some recent studies indicates that repurposing or reallocating agricultural support or investment and incentives that encourage increased productivity, sustainable production practices, and healthy data rich choices has the potential for a triple, triple win, not only for people, but also for planet and, and for, for, for prosperity. Uh, this can be done, for instance, by allocating more public expenditures for agriculture, research and development, and development uh, rural infrastructure, eco-service, uh, payment for farmers, and, and, and so on. And let me finish with two, two, two comments. First, I think that reducing domestic support that distort trade and production had been a goal since the creation of WTO, and we must keep pushing for that. This must be in the, in the agenda of WTO, even when we talk about the reform of the, of the, of the WTO. And second, proposal for repurposing agricultural subsidies towards environmentally friendly activities or programs are very welcome. We all, we are all agree on that, but they should not serve as an excuse to continue maintaining distorting aids to production and trade because green protectionism is around the corner. Thank you very much, uh, Valerie. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you so much for bringing a, a different perspective to, to the discussion we were having. So um, I think that, that with this, we have a, Many, many things to, to keep um, um, discussing now at the uh, Q&A. So I would like to start with one question uh, that it was placed by uh, Shadrach Agaki. Um, he's from communications and food policy expert in Kenya. And he specifically asked this question to uh, David, but I do think that actually many of you can, can also uh, comment on this because it relates to some of your uh, previous comments. So he says, what David is saying is extremely important, especially in Kenya, where there is a fertilizer subsidy, but people are questioning the effectiveness. One of the critical concerns is the question of soil testing to inform the type and quantity to, to be applied. So his question is, what will be the best strategy to communicate these policies in a matter that is holistic to cater to all fronts? So David, you can start with this one, please. Yes, thank you. And, and particularly, this year, the fertilizer question and how we, we respond to fertilizer prices has been on top of the agenda for, for many policymakers and, and many farmers. Now, um, I think gradually there is really this um, realization that fertilizer is not the answer to all your, your, your problems, and soil health in particular is important. So what you need is to make sure that you use the right amount of fertilizer in the right place for the right crops, but also you care of your soil. And um, in, in June in 2023, the, the African Union is going to host the uh, African Summit for um, Soil Health and Fertilizer, where some of this will be discussed. But in terms of policy design, it's really where, you know, 
the complementarity and providing you know these services extension services for instance to be able to uh, help farmer maybe um, has to come hand in hand with fertilizer subsidies and i will say at the end can be uh, actually even the most important type of policy that uh, policymakers should uh, provide but now we should not be naive in terms of how some of these policies and subsidies have been used meaning that the political economy means that some government like to give you know every year payment to farmers to or subsidies to farmers uh, for a nice photo ops but also to get them basically depending on them instead of empowering them with better knowledge and better capacity to uh, to be more autonomous and that's where actually, you know, sometimes we oppose, and maybe it's something that we see in many developed economies where we say, oh, farmers will oppose some of this reform. In the global south, actually, there are many farmers that know that the way that the money is distributed currently create more inequalities, more inefficiencies, and they still aim to get some support, but they are pretty open to rethink how these policies have been designed and implemented, uh, because in particular, the, the most vulnerable farmers today are not the one that benefits the most from uh, the policies, and that's where there is a lot of things to do. Thank you. Uh, Ken, do you want to comment on this one as well? Thank you. Very briefly, look, to, to agree with everything that David said, first thing. Uh, second is, uh, I think it's also possible um, to not just look to governments, but to look to the private sector. So there's a number of agribusinesses, including upstream suppliers, uh, that are doing um, a lot to make it possible for their products to be used correctly. Uh, it makes sense to do that. And if they want to keep a social license to continue to sell synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, they pretty much have to do that. Um, and wherever you are in the world, there are increasingly uh, available uh, simple apps to help you um, manage to take the place in some cases of extension workers that may or may not be available. So yes, look to the government, but I think there's some better connections that can be made uh, across the supply chain as well. Thank you, um, Ken, very much. So we have also an anonymous question that says, what is the sustainability record of those countries that don't subsidize so much? Could market-based incentives be used to drive change? I don't know if anybody would like to take the first. Uh... So there's not, a, there's not an, an energetic list of respondents. The, the first part I'll leave to somebody else. Um, on the second part, uh, yes, I think market incentives can play a role. So uh, the first the first step in, in policy reform is to stop telling people to do things you actually don't want them to do. So remove the disincentives to to some of the to some of the change in behavior that 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 you're looking for. Um, and I think you know some increasingly, and maybe this is a bit naive, but I believe it, so I'll say it. Uh, sustainability is increasingly becoming a source of competitiveness. Um, and if you are a downstream, if, if you're a consumer-facing company, uh, you're having to attest to your consumers that you have a sustainable, in, in, with many definitions of sustainability, supply chain. Um, and as this translates its way back uh, uh, through the food system, uh, that 
hopefully there will be. Uh, there's not so many yet, but hopefully there will be uh, real market incentives to produce more sustainably, not just because it's good for your own operation, but because uh, in, in, a, in an environmental sense, but because it, it's profitable to do so as well. Nelson, um, thank you very much, uh, Ken. And Nelson, would you like to comment on this? Uh, yeah, just a, a, a small, a small. Uh, uh, well, in, in Argentina, perhaps you 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 know that we we have a a, a negative uh, PSC. Uh, we are the opposite of of subsidies. Uh, we have uh, some other policies that are more more affecting production. But we have found a way to produce in a sustainable way, mostly uh, because of response of the, of the market and uh, pushing forward for the private sector. We have uh, initiatives that uh, works on carbon neutrality. We have initiative that works on good agricultural practices that are mostly uh, coming from the private sector. And that I think is, is, is a good response to a demand that is asking for sustainable products. I think we are working on that. The, the, the market is, is working on that. Uh, the, all the demand of not only on, on developed countries, but also in developing countries, our consumers are demanding for sustainable products. So I think producers are, has an awareness on that and I'm working on that way uh, or without subsidies, uh, at least in, in our country. Thank you, Nelson, for bringing the perspective from Argentina. And Sofia? Well, not uh, just to bring up a bit of maybe skepticism. I mean, one, yes, there's terrible environmental damage from agriculture in many countries in the world, and not very many countries have these um, subsidies. So clearly the subsidies are a problem and they are real and we should deal with them, but there's lots of other reasons why agricultural production is not sustainable. And, and for many, you know, so we need to be looking at other things as well. Um, but then on the second part, I mean, not that you can't use market incentives, but just to recognize that we have had many, many, many years of um, round tables for sustainable production, you know, red plus programs, so on. They have a pretty shocking, track record. And so I think what's really important, one, even in the report from 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 the from IIT, the, you know, the 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 power of the consumer in all this is pretty small. I think that was one of the findings that I, I read. And I think what would be more powerful is the investors. So where are the investors asking for change? And we do see that. We published a report on the um greenhouse gas emissions associated with JBS, the meat packer, just before their investor stakeholder meeting last April. And they didn't like that, but they've come back and we've had the argument and, and had the press coverage that supports what we're saying with the numbers available. There's no transparency over the greenhouse gas emissions of these companies, but what they choose to publish, we can use. And with the, the methodologies of FAO and others, we can do some calculations. And I think the investors will create a real pressure point, uh, just as the insurance and reinsurance firms have created a pressure point. So, so just wanted to put that um, absolutely believe in market incentives, but let's understand where the power in the market lies. And I feel that the consumer power, the other, other quick thing is what we've seen in Europe is the consumer pressure onto the supermarket or the meat company or the dairy then puts pressure back down the chain onto the farmers. So you, you've seen both 
a, a bit of a shifting of production offshore <laughs> so as to not worry about the environmental standard that the consumer or the populace is asking for. But you also see pressure up the chain to say, you farmer, you better give me something produced differently, not necessarily, sometimes with a financial incentive, but not necessarily with a financial incentive from the, from the buyer who then is supplying the consumer. Thank you, Sophia, very much. And um, Joe, you have something to say? I, I just want to follow up on it because and, 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 and get back to some of the studies that were done and we didn't present any of the results and they're certainly online and people can look at them. But, but one of the interesting things that, that struck me when we first did this, so we did this, David alluded to these, these models where we have removed subsidies and looked at what the impacts are. I think what you find, and I think this is something that, that I, I think Sophia was saying as well, is that one, agriculture is polluting. I mean, there, I mean there, there are a lot of externalities connected with agriculture. Subsidies actually have a small part in that. I mean, you can remove that. And I think if in looking at the overall impacts on a lot of these uh, measures of externalities, they're pretty small. I mean, they're percent, small percentage points differences. I mean, oftentimes less than one. That doesn't mean that you can't do a better job with it. I mean, the, the fact is one can take repurpose these subsidies and try to get positive environmental outcomes. And I and I do think that that we are certainly not only are we seeing it with with stockholder um, uh, pressure on companies, but also just companies deciding to put in private standards and other things that creates its own set of problems, I think, for, uh, you know, a poor developing country that's trying to get their product into those markets when you have this widely different set of standards out there. But there are a lot of ways the private sector and consumers can ultimately have an impact on this. Thanks. Ken, do you want to say, uh, I don't know, follow-up comment? Yeah, just very quickly to, to, to Joe's last point, yes, uh, except for land use change. Uh, the models don't do a good job, Joe, if I understand well. Uh, and much of the impact attributed to um, negative environmental impact attri attributed to agriculture is primarily from land use changes. So to the extent that production subsidies bring land that shouldn't be into production into production, I think there is a pretty clear, pretty clear impact, at least according to the literature. Thank you. All right, and we have uh, um, many more questions. So uh, let, let me ask one more. So why is domestic support for agricultural subsidies such as difficult issue multilaterally? And what's the problem with agricultural subsidies? Um, maybe Leanne, will you? I can kick it off maybe. Thank you. Um, so why is it so different multilaterally? Um, I have experience at the WTO working in agriculture. And one of the things that I reflected on a lot was the, um, the entitlements that the agreement sets up are different for every single member. <laughs> and actually that that is, you know, it's a historical, um, comes from history and the way that they were negotiated, but it sits there as, as something that keeps the rules um, and entitlements from evolving. At the same time, there's a that piece of it that's related to um, entitlements linked to value of production, which um, is increasing over time for many, many members. And uh, 
I think that there's a, I think WTO members see that and they can see that actually having a little more room for maneuver, being less constrained, if you will, um, is is more interesting. Um, and then, you know, there's just hugely diverse policies that are put in place and differences of views across how the rules ought to be applied. And even after 20 plus years, the interpretation of the rules. So yeah, it's a pretty fraught um, political space. Uh, I'll leave it at that because I'm sure there are others who would like to hop in. Uh, Ken. Yeah, sorry to come in again. Um, the uh, there's a pretty basic political political economy argument, right? I mean, very high support, very concentrated benefits, very widely distributed costs. So, I guess that's the obvious uh, response. But I think it's much more complicated than that, and it kind of derives from the last, you know, simple little chart that David put up, where you have a set of objectives a very long time ago. Um, and, and those objectives have evolved. I would argue that the policy instruments have not uh, evolved anywhere near as swiftly. They certainly haven't kept pace with the complexity of today's objectives. So there's a, you know, there's a narrative around ag policy is good, you know, where it's good support for the sector, is good for rural communities, et cetera, et cetera. It's okay if you say it fast, but if you look at the actual impacts as opposed to the intention that, that, that a lot of policymakers have, it, it, it doesn't line up. And we are not spending money on climate. We are not spending money on digital applications. We are not spending money on extension service. We are not spending money on ag R&D. We're, we're, we're providing a lot of money in income transfers uh, that look an awful lot like policies 20, 30 years ago, different names, slightly different parameters. There's been some positive developments, but. I don't know. It's it's the, the life is much more complicated today than at than at the time of the origin of many of the policies in place. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. And uh, let's move to, to another question. So, um, to which extent we can target various goals when proposing a policy uh, reform? Um, I think that um, uh, David mentioned that in his presentation. So David, would you like to start? Yes, no, so I think that, and to follow up on what Ken has said, we, we acknowledge that at least in the policy discourse, um, there is a need to target different goals. Now I will just be careful that you cannot target too many goals with a limited number of instruments. And we also, as um, Sophia said, you know, between the farmers and the consumer, there is a longer and longer value chain. And so if you just hope that, you know, people are going to eat more fruit and vegetable by subsidizing at the farm level fruit and vegetables, that's very naive about how, you know, uh, markup evolve, uh, distribution evolve. And just also the fact that you don't want to subsidize, for example, all your consumers. I mean that, uh, and that's something even the debate we, we can see in Europe when it's about organic farming and the government say, okay, we are going to subsidize organic farming. Very good for middle class and upper middle class consumers, but the poorest people doesn't consume these goods and you are not going to bring the good of organic produce so low that tomorrow everyone will uh, afford to do it. So yes, it's good to have different goals. I think we need also to be rational about what are the policy instruments and for some government, it's 
a governance issue. You know, what is the Ministry of Agriculture doing? What is the Ministry of Health doing? You see in some countries actually emerging now with a Ministry of Food and Environment in some cases, because you want to make sure that you have the governance structure that can deal with this trade-off. And if you have too many around the too many people around the table, you may never get any decision made. So you need to find the right balance within government and of course with uh, other stakeholders. So that's one of the, I will say, main challenges in terms of, yes, we want to transform the food system. We care about different things, but we need to have the governance structure and the policy instrument that deliver on that. And at this stage, we are far from having this ready. I mean, that we still try to uh, do everything with one hammer, but uh, you cannot uh, screw things with a hammer. So diversity of instruments. Great. Thank you so much, David. And we have a, a time for just one last uh, question. And this question is from uh, Najibullah Hassan Soy. And his question is, uh, how can we improve the efficiency of government support programs? Subsidy itself may create positive outcomes if properly designed and implemented. Um, so I think that most of you cover some of, of this. Um, anybody would like to jump in? Sophia. Uh, just um, to throw a kind of academic idea out there, but um, when I was uh, looking at trade and food security for my PhD, there's this concept of adaptive governance out there and, and some interesting comparisons of places in our multilateral governance that have built-in feedback mechanisms and have ways of incorporating some science at the same time as it remains governments who negotiate and therefore a kind of binding outcome and many many places in the WTO agreement on agriculture is one where there's very many barriers Leanne touched on them many barriers to that adaptive potential and I feel that if we take you know the science of systems seriously and our understanding of food systems and climate change and these interactions and we know we can't predict everything that's going to happen there's no possible way to be dealing with perfect knowledge and so we need to be sure we have feedback and from our point of view that feedback should include the communities that are affected by these decisions as well and that i think is where some of the political buy-in would come um so it's kind of an abstract idea the the example that was given was in the 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 it was, I guess it was technical barriers to trade. I forget, it was a piece of the WTO that was just having all the time to, to deal with changing standards, what, what, what were permitted levels of various um, pollutants or, or you know, um, dealing with a problem that was very real with people who just had to find a pragmatic solution and who had experience of it. And I, and I don't know if we can extend that, but I do feel the WTO agreement on ag is, is, is hampered by the fact that Although the negotiators know a lot about their domestic agriculture policy, they're not really brought to the WTO to talk about that or discuss it. They're brought to the WTO to expand their export market. And I, and I really think that creates a, an, yeah, an incoherence um, that we could do without if we had a more adaptive approach. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sophia. And I think that Ken would like to also say something to end this, thank you. Just to add, I mean, I think it's it, it makes good sense to involve more folks with a stake in the exercise. That includes communities, it includes upstream businesses. I've attended, I don't know how many agriculture ministerial meetings in the last decade or two. It's no problem to get agriculture ministers to agree that their current policy package uh, doesn't work. It doesn't work as intended. 
uh, and they kind of sort of look in the same direction for how it should be reformed. Not exactly, but sort of, um, which is, I guess, brings me back to this re little report of ours, you know, that we basically looked at work that everybody else had did and came to a conclusion, like we're not telling the story very well. There's a lot of information available, but it isn't being woven together consistently. Uh, the message isn't getting through that you don't need to go to zero. Uh, what you need to do is a better job of what you say you want and finding some ways to, you know, to, to, to make that happen instead of just making the same mistakes and expecting a different outcome. Thank you, Ken, very much. Um, and before we, we end this, I would like to also give the floor to Peter Draper. He's executive director of the Institute for International Trade from the University of Adelaide as well. Uh, he will give some uh, concluded remarks. Peter, so nice to have you here with us. And thanks, Valeria. And uh, thanks to the panel for a great discussion. Certainly for a non-agricultural specialist like myself, it's been very illuminating. Um, I think there's a tremendous range of commendable technical work on this topic, but as Ken just reminded us, uh, the messages are not really getting through. Uh, certainly I can say that Australians, uh, I'm based in Australia, are extremely interested in this topic. In Australia, there's a main mover behind the Cairns group, of course, so we have a strong interest in, in the outcome. I just hope that policymakers have been listening very carefully to this conversation as it's evolved. I just wanted to summarize a couple of key messages that, that I took out. There were many, so these are just the, the highlights for me. Um, the first related to something that Sophia Murphy said, uh, and a particular phrase she used, which is that we need to harness the avalanche of private money seeking offsets. I think the role of the private sector in all of this is extremely important. Does raise other questions. Is the private sector also looking for subsidies? Um, it might be a, a question we may we may ask. And so, what are the, the dangers of that? And certainly, there's a lot of reform and momentum that could be harnessed behind that. Um, the second key message that I took out is that um, we need to ensure that agriculture support works as intended. This goes to the heart of the repurposing debate. But we need to be precise, as David reminded us, in defining what is harmful and, and what is not. Um, and partly that's about attaching climate risk to agriculture in a more systematic way, which also gets back to the role, I think, of the private sector. And I think we heard very clearly throughout the conversation that trade-offs still matter. They haven't gone away. They're still very complicated. Um, perhaps a systems-based approach, as Leanne Jackson suggested, is one way to think about this. That's very complicated, of course, but that doesn't make it less important. But that also highlights that the politics of reform, as we all know, are extremely challenging. And so, as Ken told us, we've been at this for 45 years. We've made all the economic arguments vis-a-vis agricultural subsidies reform in its own right. But we haven't seen much progress and every Australian and his dog will tell you that. So we need new ideas, we need new approaches. How do we bring together the legal discussions in the WTO, economic discussions in the OECD into the political space in ways that make this actually happen so that there's a new chemistry and a new reform momentum? Big questions, we don't necessarily have the answers. 
But I wanted to end on the note that Ken began with, and one of the reasons that we put this report together, which is that business as usual is not working. I think we all know that we need new ideas. Ken offered a couple, there's certainly some in the report. For example, maybe a new plurilateral on agriculture in the WTO that brings the main players together. It is conceivable, the politics of courts are very challenging. That doesn't make it uh, not worth trying. That should be seen as part of a broader subsidies reform package. Um, it is, a, as Ken told us, the new growth industry. Um, so how do we manage that in a broader context? I think, and we certainly make this case in the report, that a more activist approach is, is required. So building that reform coalition, mobilizing the kinds of technical arguments and evidence that, that we've just uh, spoken about, about. But it also needs to navigate the different values at stake, as Leanne reminded us, and there are many different uh, values at stake. So how do we do that in new creative ways, bringing the key stakeholders to the table? That's a big question, one that we're certainly interested in. So I'll end on that point. Uh, thanks to everybody again for a great conversation and to IFPRI for hosting this webinar. Peter, thank you very much. And before I end, I would like just to thank again the University of Adelaide, uh, Peter and Ken for co-organizing the event with us. Uh, USAID and the, um, also the Australian Foreign Ministry for funding. And then our colleagues, you know, Nelson, Sophia, uh, Leanne, and thank you very much for, for joining us uh, today. Your comments and everything was, they were superb. And then my colleagues from IFPRI, David and Joe, of course, I thank you so much for, for being always there <laughs> and for doing great work. Uh, I definitely uh, love working with you, but also from uh, our communications colleagues that they were also uh, make this event uh, possible. So Joanna, uh, Michael, Jamet, Sarah, Mabel, thank you so much for everything. And with this, have a good, um, good day, good rest of the day, evening, um, and uh, happy holidays to everyone. And of course, that happy World Cup this weekend. Thank you all. Goodbye. <laughs>